Okay, if you've got a Bible, would you like to turn to Romans chapter 5? We're going to look at verses 12 to 21 under the subject of reigning in life. And uh, we're looking over the next few weeks at Romans chapter 5 to 8. So we're looking at Romans 5 verses 12 Uh, to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For in many, uh, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and the life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, through, the, through leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul introduces us to uh, a way of living, uh, and he describes that living saying that we can actually reign in life. That is, that in our Christian life that we can rule or there can be something that rules over the things of life. Now, I don't know how you describe yourself, um, but I would say that, that if I look back over my life, that all sorts of different things for all sorts of different reasons have, 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 have ruled over my life. I'm just now being honest to you. I know that you think that because I'm the pastor uh, that I've lived a, a perfect holy life all of my life, but I'm, things have just sometimes ruled over my life. So I can honestly tell you uh, that sin has ruled over me on occasions, that my mind has ruled over me and uh, taken uh, its rule over me, that my emotions have ruled over me, that my past has ruled over me, that my circumstances have ruled over me, 
And sometimes it's not even the big thing that's ruled over me. It's sometimes lots of little things that have all come together and they have ruled over me. I've sometimes felt that uh, things not only in my family, uh, but sort of in my wider family, and, and I include Callie's family in that I've sometimes felt that those things have, have overwhelmed me and dominated uh, my, my, my life. Even when I had a, uh, a proper job and didn't do this job, I often thought, would I, able, would I be able to do anything other than um, do, go to work and live? Would, was that, uh, would that be um, once working, uh, as, the, as Rachel would remember, uh, in a place in New Haven, uh, thinking that all that I could uh, do working in this place was to survive, that that was my, that my main aim in life was just to survive this period. And I would say that if I look back, there is a concept that the, the Christian life is actually not a series of victories, but actually a series of failures. I can honestly admit to you that I have found praying often a bind, that, that I've found reading my Bible, I don't know if you've ever done this, that I've sometimes found it easier to read a novel or a historic novel, which is what I like, to read that than actually read my Bible. That somehow or another I've been able to be fixed into that and then open my Bible and look at it and think, I just can't do this. It seems to not help me. And it has become therefore a burden to me. And I know that often uh, before I was an elder, uh, I can remember having those meetings, I don't know that you've ever done this, uh, perhaps you haven't done this with me uh, yet, perhaps you're just afraid to do this, but uh, when I was a young man having uh, meetings with my elders and, they, and them saying, now here's the things, Nigel, that we'd like to change uh, about you so that we can uh, use you in God and that sort of stuff. And I just thought, how am I ever going to do these things? And if we're honest with ourselves, religion, and when I mean religion, I mean the institution of religion, has drummed into us that to reign in life, we must do something. Something must occur that we must do so that we can reign in life. That reigning in life really is to do with my performance as a Christian, how I perform. And uh, Paul introduces this, and the way that he does this, and it's difficult to try and impress this on you, is that he's trying to get us to see in this passage a scale or a, a kitchen scales. Do you remember those old brass ones that used to sort of go like this? What he's trying to do is he's saying that on this side here, you can stack life. And it can be burdensome, huge, massive, however that you want to describe it. But he's saying that when we put this reigning in life on the other scales, however small that that might appear... 
it can tip the balance. It can tip the balance on all other things that exist in life, whether they're Christian things, as you like to call it, in, or not. And what he says is that if you put on this side of the scales, what he describes in verse 17 as the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ, that actually if we get that in perspective, this thing that we call life, that, is, that this is able to tip our balance and change our ability to reign in life. Now I know that I've found this sometimes the most easiest and yet the most complex thing to do. Because sometimes we think in ourselves, this is not the way that I want to attack life. But actually this is Jesus' way of attacking life and the Apostle Paul's. So how does Paul get to this point? Well, before we get to the reigning in life bit, he introduces us to two people. The first one is Adam, and the second one is Jesus. And he introduces us to this because of this. He says, I want to introduce you to one man and his sin, and another man and his salvation. So we're going to look at, very briefly, these two uh, men first. There's the one man, Adam. Verse 12, sin entered the world through the one man. Paul does not name him at this point, although we know he's referring to the man Adam, the first first guy, the Garden of Eden guy, that Adam. He's introducing us to that. We know that that's Uh, This is Adam, because 12 times between verses 12 and 19, what he will do is that he will will tell us it is Adam. So you've got to believe me, this is Adam. And he says this, interestingly, that sin entered the world. So evil entered the world, which means that sin existed before Adam, and then used Adam... As, the, as, the, as its instrument. So sin came into the world. Is that not how you feel? Sin and the world. It's all around us, isn't it? Sin entered the world. Everywhere you go. Everywhere you look. The world, of course... Uh, is the human race and not the physical earth, and uh, sin brought with it death. The consequence of sin in the world was that all men will die. Now, this is a problem for our modern thinking and our modern philosophers, because what happens is that they argue that death is inevitable for our bodies. Sin or no sin. They don't want to connect the two. Because if you, have to, if you connect the two and you look at uh, as, uh, death being the consequence of sin, then you have to come to a conclusion, there is a God. But the Bible clearly tells us that death is a consequence of sin. So when Adam sinned, this is what God said to him, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The consequence of Adam's sin and the death that it brought meant that death came to all mankind. It's not that we blame Adam, although some famous people have blamed him for our sin and death. 
this life that I'm not reigning in is all Adam's fault. If he hadn't done what he had done, I would be all right. Even by that statement, it just shows that you sin because you blame somebody else. In fact, such has been the blame and sort of uh, feelings or in regard to uh, Adam that even our great reformers have had a go at him, Paul Ladd. So Adam, uh, Calvin said this of Adam. He said, he has corrupted, violated, depraved, and ruined our nature. Now that is true on one sense, he has. But if you look at verse 12, it tells us that death spread to all men because all men sinned. All men sinned. All of us sinned. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. What's in Adam, that rebellious, disobedient spirit that ignores God, is actually in us all. We, uh, the, that is what is called the doctrine of original sin. Rupert has found out that he has not fathered a perfect baby. That even this little one has already learnt how to manipulate his parents. We went round there the other night. And this little one, who Rupert eloquently told us this morning that he held it in his arms, we walked through the door to hear this incredible noise of this child screaming. We'd never heard Judah cry before. What is this, we thought? Fleur's having a bad moment upstairs. No, the two of them were sitting calmly downstairs. They welcomed us into the house. In we went, thinking, should somebody not notice that this is a racket that's going on here? And that we are talking to each other, raising our voices about the weather and all this sort of stuff. Up Rupert trots to the bedroom, raises the child three inches from the cot bed. What miraculously happens? It's quiet. (laughs) I want this. Father... I do not want this. (laughs) He's got a lot more to learn yet, hasn't he? (laughs) He hasn't yet got to the teenage thing. Come on. (laughs) We sit and laugh. Verse 13, we get a bit of diversion. Because... What has risen in the early church is a concept that, that how can we sin if there was no law to break? It's usually held that uh, the law was the law of Moses, so uh, one uh, cannot be a lawbreaker if there's no law to break. But Paul's argument is that, uh, is that death still reigned before Moses and, and sin was punished. You can see that through Noah and the ark and all that sort of stuff. It's just a digression. And that's why you get in verse 14, and nevertheless or, yes, or yet. From Adam to Moses, death reigned, verse 14. 
There's an absoluteness, isn't there, about sin and death. It's almost sort of, if you want to know, what, what do you want to know that exists in the world that's absolute? Well, we all know that, we all know, don't we, that, uh, that death is absolute. But have you ever thought this, that sin is absolute? Everybody sins. It's an absolute. And uh, death is sovereign. It's complete. There are no exceptions. I'm ever so sad to say this. We will pick this up at one point. I promise I will encourage you. But I'm ever so sorry to say this. If you haven't guessed this one yet, even if you are a 19-year-old student, you are not beyond death. You will die. Okay, this passage tells us that the, the sin of the people was not like the sin of Adam. But their sin led to death. It's final. It's lacking in hope, isn't it? It's miserable. It's sad. It's unavoidable. Adam, the first man, the head of the race, the race of sinners, the race of the ones who sin. What race are we in? We're in the race of sinners. What is our consequence? Death. The Bible describes us, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22, for in Adam all die. We all sin. We all die. We're blighted with this sin. There's no human activity that can get us out of this situation. Sin wells up within us, surfaces, rises, and aims to conquer. There are some, sev- there are some practical and good points about being in Adam and the sin that wells up within us. The first thing is, it humbles us morally and intellectually. Morally, because I must admit that I do bad things. I have to admit that I do wrong. <laughs> That's dead hard as husband. It's dead hard. You know, it's one of the most difficult things, isn't it? I am wrong. And I, I not only need natural training to get out of this, I need supernatural birth. Something about me needs to die and something needs to be created. So what does sin do for you and I? It humbles us. Secondly, it deepens, therefore, our gratitude of salvation itself. The more we see that how rotten we have been at the core, the more you look at the salvation and you go, blooming heck. You know, so salvation it should be valued against the sin in which we've been delivered from. It isn't just, hey, I have a great salvation, as quoting Steve Hawkins, whoopee-doo. It isn't, there you go. it isn't just that. It actually is what you have been rescued from. That's the essence of worship. It's the essence of life. It's the essence of understanding. Thirdly, 
It helps us to explain the world that you live in. The ironic thing about the doctrine of original sin is that although it's the hardest one to admit that we all sin, it explains what happens when you have an up and a downy with your neighbour, when your work colleague is like your work colleague is, when, when you get into the world and you get treated like you do, it explains the world. Else you go, I went into this situation and flipping heck, I didn't expect that. Well, here's something you can expect from your neighbours and from your friends and from your world colleagues. You can expect them to sin against you. Why am I saying that? It's dead pastoral, that is, guys. It's protecting you. So if you get one in the, oh, no, that was a bit of a surprise, original sin. Now you don't need to be surprised. We're away with it. What we're going to get, what's going to happen with life? We're going to get hurt, ruined, messed around because sin is in the world. There is a universal, universal sense of evil all around us. Fifthly, Fourthly, fifthly, fourthly. I've done one, two, three, five. I can't remember what four was. Doesn't it produce compassion for others? This is a quote from Jonathan Edwards, uh, American revivalist hundreds of years ago. This doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than ourselves. It teaches us that we are all, as we are by nature, companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which, under a revelation of the divine mercy, tends to promote mutual compassion. And nothing has a greater tendency to promote amiable disposition of mercy, forbearance, long-suffering, gentleness, forgiveness, than our own sense of our own unworthiness and misery and the infinite need that we have of a divine pity, forbearance, forgiveness, together with a hope of obtaining mercy. What does he mean? He just means... Don't treat others differently to how you have been treated with. Something like that. Sixthly, doctrine, this doctrine should motivate us to evangelism and mission. It teaches us that there is no exception to the human sinfulness. All who come from Adam are in need of a second Adam. There is only one. His name is Jesus. There is only one way to get right with God, and it's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It helps us to see that we're all on a, play, a level playing field here. Because sometimes what we do is that we say, hold on, the playing field is not level. There is this section. These are the not-so-bad section. Not, they're sort of... You know, I could live next to them. This section, not as good as them. I have to be a little bit wary when I'm with this section. This section would not choose them as my friends. The ones to avoid. This, evil. (laughs) Rotten at the core. Have avoid them, especially the French ones. 
That's the, the Welsh, the, 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 no, we won't go there. And then the French. So, no. But you see, it's a, it's, it makes ev- evangelism works when we see there is a level playing field. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, let's get out of the grim. Verse 15 begins to change the perspective by introducing the one man who saves, Jesus. It's a sustained comparison of the work of Christ with the work of Adam. Our first father, what did he bring to all his offspring? Disaster. But Jesus, the new Adam, what did he bring? Life. So let's work through some of those comparisons. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, by me, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have, has, uh, have the grace of God and the free gift of, uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Adam is known for his trespass. Jesus will be known for his free gift and bringing the free gift of salvation. It's a comparison. So what Jesus is saying, what what Paul is saying is, the gift is far more potent than the trespass. Do you see that? Adam brings his trespasses. What do I do with all these sins that have come to me? You see that? Nobody is left hopeless anymore. What do I do with all these sins? I plunk them on this scale and I have the potency on the, uh, of the free gift. It weighs down the scales and it brings the other one to the floor. For many have died through the one man's trespass. Much more... Uh, have the grace of God. The effect of Adam is to bring disaster and death to everyone. But Jesus brought into the world, not a trespass, but Jesus brought into the world an abundant gift. And Jesus didn't say, okay, we need to change one or two things here. It says here, he brought with him the abundance of positive blessing. He didn't just bring something that would reverse it. He brought something that would overpower somebody with blessing. That would overwhelm them. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The gift is set against This one man's sin. Here's the thing. Sin does not have to be the last word. The gift offers an alternate for the sinner. And Jesus has the last word over sin. Isn't that brilliant? Fantastic. Here's sin. And you go, no, it will not be the last word. My sin, your sin, does not have to be the last word. Well, I like that bit. Jesus always has the last word. The Alpha and the... Got it! Judgment as against the gift 
in verse 16. Sin always leads you to judgment. You always go through that process of, no, I will be judged according to my sin, which leads to death. But judgment against the gift, God is not defeated by sin. Fantastic. Isn't that really encouraging too? That we have a God that will not be defeated by sin. Condemnation against justification. The result of one sin and all sins is that condemnation comes to the human race. But Christ's act of justification brings us a complete pardon which brings with it a complete release. You are not supposed to just understand the legal implications of being pardoned. You are supposed to understand the emotional side of it too. You're supposed to experience it. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. Is an emotional response to a legal thing. Okay. So Jesus is a bit better. So what, what does all this mean then in terms of reigning in life? Why is this important? Here's the first important piece. Will you please hear me? So you need to concentrate for this point and concentrate like you've never done before. Because we as Christians are not in some gooey in-between between Adam and Christ. We are either in Adam and remain unrighteous, or we are in Christ and free from guilt and shame. There is no middle ground. That is very important for you. It is life-changing. Do you want to go higher? It is life-changing. The problem is that Christians seem to live in a mire between Adam and Christ. I am saved, but I'm bogged down with life. My life really is a bit of a mess. That is not how God sees you. He did see you as in Adam. He rescued you. And he placed you in Christ. Let me try and explain this. In God, there is no gooey mess. The only person that places themselves in a gooey mess is you. There is none. There is no way. It doesn't exist in the positional thing. You were taken out of Adam. You were placed into Christ. We're not on some sort of catholic thing here, where we sort of, well, we are saved, but we sort of just, I've got to do a little, this is, this is not where we are. You are, in, you are not in Adam anymore. Adam is not the father of your race. You are in Christ. Thank you, Fleur. I was just wondering whether I need to say it ten times to get... Okay. Listen to this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. How do you therefore stop this thing where I know that I'm out of Adam, I know that I'm in Christ, but everything in my yed here seems to place me back in the gooey mess sometimes between the two? Because that's the reality, isn't it? Let's start with the easy bit. How do you get to reign in life? Well, the Bible tells us here that you have to receive an abundance of grace and a free gift, the free gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. You have to receive it. That's the first thing. You receive it. You welcome it. You actually make a decision that these things will now govern my life that grace and righteousness will govern my life. Which means that every situation from now on, every occurrence, every feeling, every reality will be governed by this one truth. Whatever happens, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will govern it. So you're stacking it up against everything that occurs. Let me put this close to home. I, uh, through this uh, summer, um, you might have to edit this, Phil, a little bit. Um, and if, if I view this situation on its own, the only product for me is an overwhelming sense of sadness that paralyzes me. It's, it renders me, seems to... Uh, unable to do much. What I found is that this truth in this, Bib- in this Bible written by this Apostle Paul releases you. Because if I put this into a context of an astonishing, extravagant salvation given to me as an undeserved sinner, I have found that my perspective is different. The facts haven't changed, but my viewpoint in viewing them does change. That's what happens. And instead of life reigning me, I have an ability to stand in the middle of it and reign in life, because I receive these truths, not as an academic exercise, but in an understanding and revelation of who I am in Christ. And that governs everything that I then do and everything that I'm involved in. Because I have found out this, and this is what I believe Paul to be saying, that grace is not impotent. It's not powerless. It's not weak. It's not helpless. That when God's grace is applied to your life, it is immensely releasing of everything. I need to, you to know something. Because uh, sometimes people think that I am like I am, and I've always been this sort of guy that behaved a little bit oddly in worship or something like that. That's not the truth, guys. I I was wrapped up in legalism. And 
actually would have been very critical. Grace does something in your heart. The gift of righteousness does something in your heart. If you haven't received these things, it is the thing that Paul says can tip the balance. Who I am in Christ tips the balance on everything. And if you are not thoroughly immersed in the fact that God has saved you by grace and given you the gift of righteousness that has made you acceptable to God, you will battle with life. Life will be your enemy and you will be its foe and you will argue the toss with every part of life. Except what happens with this is that you will deal with disqualification, you'll deal with guilt, you'll deal with fear that you are never good enough, you will not reign. Grace enables you to reign. Every Christian knows the feelings of condemnation. You try and work these things out, don't you, by doing, but must do better next time. The problem is with that one, that you do better next time and you get a bit more condemnation. Oh, blow it, I did it again. Do <laughs> you know an absolutely breathtaking exchange has taken place? Oh, God. Jesus has taken all your sin. <laughs> and in exchange, he's given you all his righteousness. Now, that wasn't just a legal thing that happened. At all? What happened was a legal thing that is supposed to permeate through your body to release you in life. To release you in life. So that life is not a a bondage anymore. The spotless Jesus Christ has been accredited to your account. You are fully acceptable to God. It is not an issue of your performance anymore. You are acceptable to God. Full stop. You are in Christ. You're not in Adam. You're not in the murk. You're in Christ. You are acceptable. I like it. The grace that was given to you, well, what about these sins, is described as much more. This is the wonderful thing. Here's the balance thing that we were talking about. Where did he get the balance thing from? Here it is. The grace that was given is described as much more. The original, how much more? Sin got what it deserved, death. But that's not the way that it is with grace. Grace means that you can't measure it. (laughs) You can't. You can only wonder in it and bask in it and lie in it. We have a strange thing when we go on holiday. I don't understand this, but people do this strange thing. They, they have, it's 30-odd, 40 degrees when we go on holiday, and they have one of those round things that bubbles up. What do you call them? Jacuzzi, jacuzzi. And it's outside, and they heat the water, which is always a puzzle to me, as because as when you go in it and they come out, looking like lobsters. Because it's like, it's like the first day that you have an Englishman on holiday. And it's this sort of thing. And, and you look at it, and you see them, and they, and they come out this, and they go, 
It's really enjoyable. Kelly and I have tried this. It's not in your, bubbles up your bum is not an enjoyable experience, despite what they say. But what, they, what you, what you realise is that when you go in, well, I don't know whether you've, I've ever done this, is that you go in, um, Kelly's sister, and, and you go in, and, and they, you sort of snuggle down in it. So you've got your head out of the top like this. And then you have to press the button. See, everybody's going... Don't tell me you've not done this. And you press the button and suddenly it shoots out from all this sort of... Now, I, I'm, a, I'm sort of... Um, I'm a man from Birmingham, okay? And these sort of things are foreign to me. Absolutely foreign. I don't understand this manicuring business, this you know, men plucking eyebrows and all that sort of stuff. Don't understand it, man. I'm Ben. So when you, when you push this button, the, I, I, felt, I go, wait, what's going on with all this sort of stuff? But you are absolutely, uh, you are overwhelmed with this stuff. You are governed by it until it stops. And I don't know whether you realize this, that grace is designed to overwhelm you. It is supposed to do that. That's what the idea is. Much more than the sin. That's what it's supposed to do. Grace is supposed to work out in terms of equivalent. It is superlative generosity in the extreme. It's overwhelming. It's abundance. It comes through the one man, Jesus Christ. God's mercy is not, the, is not a hand giving out prizes in the scouts or the cubs. Hey, You've got your badge for cooking. Good boy. Badge. Look, knots. Let's give him a badge. Knots badge. Knots, three knots I tied. And it's not like that. Grace and mercy and love and acceptance is yours at all measure for all time, despite what you are. It's not sort of, it's not like the queen giving out the maundy money or whatever. Here's your little coin. Ooh, thank you. No, not ever. The point is here is that it is to do with grace is more powerful than Adam's trespass. That's why we're using them much more. It's, it tips the balance. It is supposed to tip the balance on everything. It sounds very simple. The grace is sovereign grace. I love this. Why is it called, why do theologians call it sovereign grace? Because it has the power of the king of the universe behind it. It's conquering grace. It kills its foes. That's what we're supposed to get. We're supposed to get this idea of grace coming to us like some sort of mighty king on a mighty stallion conquering its foes before it. Oh, I have this little issue in my life. Here comes grace and it tramples it down. That's the idea. How do you reign in life? You stand every situation against the one man, Jesus Christ. You compare it, you contrast it, and you receive the results. How do you reign in life? You compare and contrast every situation with the free gift that you do not deserve. That's how you do it. Every time something happens in your life, you go back and you go, let's compare this to the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness. Paul celebrates the abounding grace. We're nearly through now. 
Paul celebrates the abounding grace of Christ and the perfect obedience of Christ. And he says this, he says that grace leads through Christ's obedience to the triumph of eternal life. It's in those latter verses. Grace will lead you home. Help as we approach home. Do you know that has helped me? How, how will I deal with my brother? Okay, he's, he's a Christian. Well, he's all right then. No, he's not. Flipping hurts for a start. No. Grace leads you home. Every step of the way. I get closer to home, closer to home, whether that be in sickness or in age. And Paul says here, that what the battles lie ahead, I will not leave you abandoned. I will give you grace to sustain you. Verse 21. Listen to this. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns through righteousness, through Jesus Christ, to the great climax of life itself, eternal life. This is, this is your answer. This is the answer for everything. Doesn't it sound so simple? That's the point. This is the great glory of Jesus, that he outshines Adam, the spectacular Sins of Adam are not as great as the spectacular grace and righteousness and obedience of Jesus and the gift of eternal life. God's plan from the beginning in his perfect righteousness was that Adam, as the representative of humankind, would be a type of Christ, as the representation of a a new humanity. His plan was that by comparison and contrast that Jesus might have the glory and that he might shine more brightly than Adam. Your job is to compare and contrast everything to this great gift, to allow the truth to tip the balance on your life in every circumstances, every lie of the enemy, and he will not leave you alone to do that. He will give you the Holy Spirit so that you can reign in life. Uh, if we can sing the Amazing Grace thingy version that we sang before uh, while you're setting that up. You can reign in life.